0: In this room, we have at the moment an exhibition called Alpha to Omega, which involves all three of the major collections at the university, the art collection, the antiquities collection, the Nicholson collection, and the Maclay collection, which is the natural history collection. You
1: say, Colin. (laughs) You know, for me, you're in the future. Like, uh, Like a man on the moon or in a tin pan. Welcome to the Eat Radio podcast. And here's your host, Colin Pope from Eat Magazine. Hi, and welcome back to the Eat Magazine podcast. If it's your first time here, welcome. I'm Cullen, your host. Please um, do try and click on part one of of this podcast which was called straight from the heart of australia's leading higher education university and and really um that's where we started our tour with fran it's been fantastic and so we're now just outside the great hall here within the university and just before we step inside if you can remember fran talking about the amazement of elizabeth the first of england being so literate of course Uh, But one thing that many people perhaps don't know is that she could also not only read and write uh, in English, um, but also in French, Italian, Flemish, uh, Spanish, Latin and Greek. Later on in life, she even gained the verbal ability in Cornish, Irish and Scottish. And so let's find out a little bit more as we step inside the Great Hall.
0: Okay, so this is the Great Hall, which is also extremely Harry Potter. Um, no floating candles though. Um, this was, be- was begun in 1855 to take the ceremonial place that a cathedral or a chapel would have in a university or in a college, in, certainly in Oxford or in Cambridge. Um, One of the unusual things about Sydney University is we've always been been a secular university. Um, We've never had a church or a chaplain, so this space is for the ceremonies that would normally happen at another university in that kind of space. When it was constructed, it was the largest room in Australia until Sydney Town Hall was completed. Um, Everybody said it was too big and too expensive, I think we only had... 20, 30 students at the time, Um, but of course now we've got more than 51,000 students and it's way too small. So instead of having a graduation day, we have a graduation season. Sometimes we have four graduations a day, day after day after day, because we do like everyone to get their Testemure in here, in front of their friends and family. If you look on the roof, you can see the angels that hold the books of knowledge. These are the subjects that one would have done in a medieval university to get a bachelor's and then a master's degree. So you would have done grammar and dialectic, which is kind of debate, and poetry and music and ethics and metaphysics, astronomy, geometry, so they're the basic tenets of a medieval education. At the end, either end, this is the Oxford window and the Cambridge window. So again, we're really trying to associate ourselves with those great British educational institutions. And they show famous figures, um, princes of the church or members of the nobility, who endowed colleges at Oxford or Cambridge. So if you look at the Oxford window, up the end, top right in the blue dress, you've got Queen Elizabeth I. In the centre in the red is Cardinal Wolsey. And he's all eyeballing his old frenemy, King Henry VIII, directly across um, the room. And they each hold a model of the college that they paid for. This is kind of medieval conceit. It's a way of reminding God what a good person you've been by holding the building you paid for. Um, The stained glass that goes around is a chronological history, again, of British scholarship. All the early ones are priests because the clerical class was the only one to get a reading and writing kind of education. We go forward, we get to people like William Shakespeare over there with his lovely purple stockings on. Sir Philip Sidney, we get um, Sir Isaac Newton over here. We get the great philosophers like Locke and Hobbes. Um, And quite amusingly, I think, the last figure, the ultimate, is Captain James Cook holding the map he made of the east coast of Australia. So it's like all British scholarship led to the discovery of Australia, which is a bit hubristic of us, I suppose. But I also don't think that people really consider the enormous skill of geographers and navigators like Cook, who could find their place on the earth with only a sextant and a clock and not only knew where they were, but could make maps to show other people where they were as well. That's an enormously skilled kind of process, but, um, but yes, so that's all of the guys that go around. And then this one over here is the Victoria window. The Queen Victoria's on the throne when this building is constructed. When I think of Queen Victoria, I think of the Judy Dench version, you know, the little old fat widow in black. But this is Victoria at the height of her reign. She's beautiful. She's sitting there in the middle and she's surrounded by all the previous rulers of Great Britain, Um, including, interestingly enough, on the top left, Oliver Cromwell. Um, And you'll see he's next to Charles I and Queen Henrietta and, of course, Cromwell had Charles I's head cut off Um, but they turned their backs on him and, in fact, none of the royals look towards Cromwell so he's there but they're letting him know that they're not very happy being associated with him Um, but it is interesting that he is in fact featured Um, we have here one of the most interesting one of the special things from the University this man in the portrait um, wearing the wonderful embroidered robes of the chancellor is a man called Sir Charles Nicholson. He was one of the men about town who agitated to get a university for Australia and it happened really quickly. If you think about it it was only 70 years after the British colonists first came here that we had a university Um, and he was chancellor as you can see these are in chronological order so he not for very long but he got his portrait painted and he felt this lack of history and he went on a magnificent shopping spree in Europe to buy the kinds of things that a thousand-year-old university would have just acquired naturally furniture um, artworks books Um, and this is here part of his shopping spree so this is a tapestry
1: Wow. it's
0: woven it was he bought it in the 1850s but it actually was made in 1773 at the goeblins factory in the outskirts of paris um it's the final episode in the story of joseph um, and his brothers you know joseph of amazing technicolor dreamcoat fame um, and this is the final scene where um, the family have gone needing charitable aid into egypt And lo and behold, they find the little brother that they sold as a slave has somehow risen to power and he's the one that's supposed to be giving them the assistance. And so most of them, dad looks really happy because he was told he was eaten by a lion. So he's very happy that he wasn't eaten by a lion, but all the other brothers look frightened or guilty. Um, They're worried about punishment or maybe they're just aware of how horrible they were. Um, And of course, it's a story about mercy so joseph will forgive them and he will look after them Uh, i think that's quite a nice message for us to have here when people are graduating with their wonderful degrees and going out into the world to do great things is to remember this idea of mercy and compassion um, which it's easy to lose when you're very very clever like our students and do very very well Um, but it's it's irreplaceable Um, it's wool and linen um, and we have to keep it covered by this curtain because it's, they're all natural um, colours so it would fade and probably has faded quite a bit in the sun we can't use any fire retardants or insect repellents on it. Um, we just have to watch it very very carefully and occasionally people um, are required to do little bit of um, repair but very highly qualified people put their hands on it um, because as I said it's, it's irreplaceable and it's one of our special things. So thank you, Sir Charles, for providing that. We will be going over to the Nicholson Museum in a minute and we can see some other things that Sir Charles acquired on behalf of the university. But i better shut the curtains now.
1: Okay. When we look across to this side of the quadrangle...
0: Um, it might be interesting... I often ask people if they can tell what's different between the south side and the north side. Can you tell what's different about the south side and the north side? Something glaringly obvious.
1: Well, apart from these huge, I guess, would we call them lead lights nowadays?
0: I suppose we could, yes. Something a little bit more obvious. Obviously not obvious enough.
1: The lions.
0: No. Okay. Remember how we talked about looking at the drain pipes, and they said 1924, 1925, and that this area here was all filled in at that point. Okay, so getting on towards the end of the 1920s, we had the Great Depression, and the university was rocked as everywhere was by um, the collapse of business, and we couldn't finish the cloister. If you look, the south side has a complete undercover archwayed passage, Um, but this end is bare and open Um, and of course maybe now we could do that but it's got heritage order on it now i can't imagine anybody would ever be allowed (laughs) to um, fiddle with it but it is only half a cloister and of course it's one of the few places in the western world where um, the women's toilets are conveniently located and undercover and the men's toilets are enormously, inconveniently located and right out in the weather. So I think that's something that Sydney University should be very proud of, even if it's not.
1: <laughs> I like the fact that it was the first place I had to visit as well.
0: <laughs> there you go. So you've got a connection. That's You're right. A connection. Yeah. Along here we've got a lot more of the little grotesques. Everyone is different. Um, obviously the birds have enjoyed sitting on them at some point. Little piggy over here is very cute. Oh, it's kind of strange bat pig yeah. and more, more your classic gargoyle oh, yes. over yeah. here. So if we go in here into this foyer. Um, this is again the 1920s infill section that was next to the original Fisher Library which was upstairs there. And one of the things that's very interesting, if you look at the stained glass here, as opposed to the stained glass that we saw in the Great Hall, is that this stained glass is about Australian things. It's about World War I, it's about Gallipoli, it's about Sir Charles Kingsford Smith flying from England to Australia, it's about the opening up of the Western Plains. So this is in the 1920s, so we say we're um, 70 years, maybe, after the previous stained glass. But the attitude is different. It's much more talking about being Australian rather than trying to remind everybody constantly that we're British. So I think it's interesting that you can see that kind of cultural change um, in the depictions of the stained glass. And this stained glass was in fact um, designed and given to us by the ch- sons of Sir Charles Nicholson. And the museum's named after him. Um, and on that shopping trip that I talked about before when he bought the tapestry that we see in the Great Hall, he also collected a lot of antiquities which formed a teaching collection because Greek and Latin were the basis of a gentleman's education and um, they were used, antiquities were used as sort of illustrations. This is a kind of old-fashioned way of thinking about them but it was in the olden days Um, and So this is the basis of the Nicholson collection. So we'll go in and have a look in there. If we, and that's a Nicholson collection because I work in here, if we were in Great Britain, we would be the fourth largest collection of antiquities after the British Museum and the Oxford and Cambridge Museums. We're the largest collection in the Southern Hemisphere. We have about 35,000 objects. and nowhere near enough space to show them all. So we are always turning things over. There's always something new to see when you come into the Nicholson Museum. Um, In this room, we have at the moment an exhibition called Alpha to Omega, which involves all three of the major collections at the university the art collection the antiquities collection the nicholson collection and the mcclay collection which is the natural history collection so for example if you want to look over here under r for nose which seems not to work but in fact if you're looking at greek it does um, we've got a Papua New Guinean mask with a very prominent nose. He's from the Maclay collection. We have a painting from the art collection of a man with a broken and bleeding nose. And then the Roman statue um, started off as a statue of Augustus, but over time and because somebody didn't want to pay for a new statue for Claudius. They just did a bit of surgery on the Augustus. They did give him a bit of a nose job. Um, And if you look closely, you can see the chisel marks where they've changed the face slightly um, to become Claudius rather than having been Augustus before. So the three noses that go with R. Um, And you can see around us lots of things like shells um, from the natural history collection, over here we've got this fantastic oh, platter, um, not platter, dolphin skull um, from the Natural History Collection and again one of our Greek red figure pots. There are a lot of, in um, Greek mythology, there are a lot of characters who have rides on dolphins. This could be one of a, a number of um, people, possibly Taras, could be lots of other people. But, so putting the skull together with the antiquity as well. And you can see around, if you look at our art collection, we've got Aboriginal um, shields. Over here, we've got a vase with a horse on it. We have a preserved horse fetus. And we also have a very, very old um, Indigenous bark painting, which everybody thinks is a turtle until they look more closely. And if you look, it's got knees. Turtles don't have knees. These are, are horse legs. So it's kind of somebody who's used to painting um, turtles, trying to kind of paint the first horse he saw um, and sort of trying to work it out. And we see that a lot in, in the art when uh, two cultures come together, how the artists try to put the other culture into their own kind of style of art. Um, but yes, so this is a fantastic exhibition in here which um, I like very much. If we go into this room here, this is always an Egyptian exhibition. The current one, we have the largest uh, collection of mummy material in the Southern Hemisphere also. We don't have much on display at the moment because there are very um, strong Ethical issues to do with the display of human remains. Um, But um, this current exhibition is to do with death and the magic associated with death. All cultures have practices that occur at the time of death which attempt to get the dead person a better deal after death. Um, Whether he's hoping to be reincarnated or whether he's just hoping to stay dead but have a really good time after death. Um, And this is looking at what the Egyptians did um, with magical amulets, with statues that they put in um, burials, with this lovely preserved um, steer's head here. If you felt that you were cursed, you could put your curse onto an animal and then kill the animal, sacrifice the animal to a god, um, and that would remove the curse. And of course, the cow being such an expensive thing was a very high class sacrifice. Um, And I also think that our curator at the time was very um, desirous of a Damien Hirst moment. Um, We're not quite the Tate modern, but we do have a cow head in um, biologically inert jelly. Um, So that's pretty cool as well. And in this exhibition, we're also using elements from the anatomical collection. So from the school of anatomy, we have um, brains over there. We've also got some human hearts here, illustrating the idea of the weighing of the heart after death. Anubis, the god of mummification, um, on the scale there, with Mart, the goddess of truth, and the dead person's heart would be weighed against the feather of truth if he had bad deeds on his conscience or in his heart then this monster here would eat the heart. She's um, part crocodile, part hippopotamus and part lion. She will eat the heart and the dead person won't get an afterlife. But luckily for this person, this is the inside of a coffin that this story is painted on. If you get right down to the end, it's a bit rubbed off, but you can see that Anubis is guiding the dead person into the presence of the gods. So obviously the weighing went well and now he gets to go and have his lovely eternal afterlife. Uh, so I guess that's what everybody wanted after they were weighed in the balance. Um, and then this is a, an actual human heart from the anatomy department, slightly enlarged. Apparently this person died of leukemia, um, and that leads to the heart being slightly enlarged, but that's what I've been told. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know a heart, a little heart, if I saw one. And we have mummy cases, of course, and we've got mummified animals. Um, There's so much to look at in here. This gallery down here um, is about Cyprus. Sydney University has an enormously long history of working in Cyprus and a very good relationship with the Cypriot Department of Antiquities. And the really cool thing, we've actually got a team there that went on Monday to work on our project there. And the cool thing about Cyprus, of course, is everybody has passed through Cyprus. It's a way station between the Middle East and the rest of the Mediterranean. So the Egyptians um, had a big influence there. It's been very Greek. The Romans went through, the Phoenicians were there before that. Before that, it had its own very rich Bronze Age culture. Um, So there's masses of good stuff going on in Cyprus, um, and that's what this gallery here is all about. Moving right along, um, a wall display about childhood in the ancient world, um, toys, things that belong to children in the ancient world, and then a display of our Greek material. And as you can see, we have a pretty fabulous collection of black and red figure ceramics, so from the archaic and the classical periods in um, basically Athens, but not entirely Athens. Um, People tend to forget that there was more to Greece than just Athens. And as we go further down, you can see a lot of our statuary here is actually plaster casts. When the university began, of course, there's very little photography. So you don't have textbooks with colour pictures in to teach from. So people would rely on an artist's impression, which can be correct or it can be a bit dodgy. Um, Or you could buy these and there were firms in, particularly in Germany and in France, who took casts from the real thing and then made these plaster models and sold them to universities and teaching establishments all around the world. So these are not real. We would be very happy if they were. But they are um, 150-year-old teaching devices and um, apparently there were a lot more, but somebody in the, I think, 60s thought that the whole idea was very daggy and a lot of them were taken off to the tip, which is quite heartbreaking. Um, But people managed to save some and as time went on, they slowly filtered back and we got them back. So they're very lovely and we like them a lot. And then over here, we've got Lego Pompeii, because, of course, you can't have an ancient history museum without a bit of Lego. Um, One of the really interesting ways that we teach history, generally in the academic world at the moment, is this idea of reception. Not so much what happened in the past, but how successive succeeding cultures have looked at those events of the past. So here we're looking at the eruption of Vesuvius and the burying of Pompeii, which happened in 79 AD, from a whole lot of different perspectives. On the wall we've got a film. This is a, I love this film to pieces. It was made in 1917 in Rome, and it's... Uh, Bulma Lytton's famous Last Days of Pompeii. That's the book that starts, it was a dark and stormy night, that everybody uses as the the crazy opening line. Um, And this is our hero here. He's not my idea of a hero. Um, His hair is dreadful, but there's the baddie, the bad priest of Isis, Oh, oh, you can tell he's a baddie. And the story basically revolves around this poor little blind Christian slave girl called Nidia who loves her boss but she knows that he's not for her because she's very lowly and he's not. Um, And in the end, God makes Vesuvius erupt because people are worshipping Isis. Why he didn't make it erupt when they were worshipping Jupiter, I've no idea, but he obviously doesn't like the Egyptian gods. Um, And poor old Nidia ends up sacrificing her life to save the life of her master and his fiance. So this is a very Italian Catholic 1917 idea that peasant girls, peasant people, should sacrifice themselves for their betters and they'll kind of get their reward in heaven. Um, And that's what happens, because as Nydia slowly sinks into um, the ocean at the end, a little ray of sunlight comes down and touches on her hand, which is the only thing above the water. So that's kind of God saying, I'll look after you, kid, don't worry. Um, But we love this movie. And then we have here um, our fantastic model of Pompeii. It's not a scale model, it's more of a schematic. It's a whole lot of things in Pompeii all sort of shoved in together. And it shows a lot of events that happened between the eruption and now, all happening at the same time. So there's film crews everywhere. They're filming um, the TV miniseries Rome here. Mary Beard and her bicycle and her film crew are here somewhere. I'm a bit worried because I haven't seen her for a couple of days. I'm hoping nobody's stolen Mary Beard. Um, We'll have to have a bit of an investigation. Um, In the amphitheatre here at one end is the gladiatorial riot um, of 69 AD and at the other end the band Pink Floyd playing, they played there in 1974. So we've got modern archaeology going on. We've got Indiana Jones being chased by snakes. We've got Mozart around here. His trip to Pompeii inspired him to write the magic flute. We've got Victorian tourists being carried around in sedan chairs with glasses of wine. We've got a TARDIS because there is an episode of Doctor Who where they go back and witness the eruption of Pompeii. Um, So it's kind of a melange of all sorts of things that people have thought about and done and been inspired to do by this ancient occurrence, this eruption of Pompeii. So I hope you've enjoyed just seeing a little bit of what we have to offer um, here at Sydney University. There are a lot more things to see, obviously we're a big campus and we've been here for longer than any other university, so we do have lots of stuff, lots of fantastic spaces to look at. And the Nicholson Collection in particular, well, it's where I work, so it's got my heart, Um, but it's still a teaching collection. All students doing ancient history, archeology, span music history, art history, use it um, constantly. We get 15,000 school children through a year who are doing um, ancient history generally um, at school. So it's a very vibrant and alive place, and it's a beautiful space as well. And we have been told in the past that we were a hidden gem. We're not so hidden anymore, which is a fantastic uh, thing for us. And I guess if people want to look further, um, they can look on your website, which is eatmag.com, to see some pictures of what we've been looking at today. You could also look at Sydney University website, which also has lots and lots of images. Um, And I hope if people do come to Sydney, that they come and check us out. And we're very happy to see everybody and very happy to show them all our good stuff.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much, Fran. It's been an amazing, amazing day, an amazing afternoon and a brilliant trip for me. So on behalf of everyone, I just want to say thank you very much for sharing this with us.
0: It's a pleasure. And,
1: and so that was a real added bonus to have uh, that extra time to make our way inside the museum with Fran, uh, very generous with her time. Of course, many of those exhibitions were about to change, uh, but we wanted to keep uh, the conversation about those in the show. Uh, just to give you a sense of place and, and time really on that day uh, that we visited. Uh, And so as we go through time, we can reveal more images uh, that we took from that trip and they'll be added into this podcast. And so keep an eye out for those. And we've also added in a bit of a study guide into the podcast notes here as we can tell we had a lot of students listening from different parts of the world. We can see that from uh, the demographics, from the stats Uh, from the podcast. And so uh, welcome everybody. Uh, We encourage you to look at those show notes for this podcast about studying in Australia, uh, please do share those with friends and family uh, share this podcast with anyone that is thinking of visiting perhaps here at the university or or perhaps coming to Australia to study um, and look one of our uh, university students actually that work with us here at the magazine is very um, helpful and uh, he put this guide together and it's been uh, it's been really brilliant uh, to see that come through and so I'll catch up with you. Uh, in the next podcast as we make our way across the city here in Sydney. We've also just launched our second podcast uh, here at the Eat Magazine website at eatmag.com E-A-T-T-M-A-G.com called Learn English with Cullen. And so um, it's really just uh, it's it's a beginner's guide to English. Just listening to some uh, very simple uh, sentences and uh, phrases for those people that are learning English, uh, particularly for those uh, listeners that we have. Uh, uh, really sort of uh, so many listeners now from around the world and we hope that um that's a resource uh, for some of you and you enjoy that uh, that new podcast as well so thank you for all of the team here for joining us uh tonight have a great weekend ahead and we'll catch you in the next podcast cheers